Good to see y'all today. Let me um, start. Before I go to the message, I want to offer a brief financial update. Apologies for those of you who've heard this a couple times, but so we, our budget here at Sanctuary is about $500,000 annually, and um, that does everything here, makes everything possible. All of our hands on faith, all of our ministries and programs are made possible through generous donations. Many are giving regularly and generously, and for that we say thank you so much. At the same time, as we come to the end of the year, we're facing about a $40,000 deficit, which is about 8% of our overall budget. In the short term, we're fine. We have enough uh, you know, cash to cover this kind of deficit. But we do want to invite those who maybe have not given to Sanctuary this year to consider doing so. Uh, that will help us uh, fill in that pie and meet our goal for the year. Uh, but it'll also help us as we think about next year. We're planning next year's budget, 2024. How we do this year will impact how we plan and think about the next year. So if you've not given a sanctuary for the year or could do more, we invite you to help us out, meet us, uh, help meet our goal. And we can fill in that pie. Look how much more satisfying <laughs> a full circle looks. I'll even, I'll put a Santa hat on it for, for vibes. Uh, it's just so nice. Okay, on with the teaching for this morning. I found a poll online that was given to Americans about a month ago. Americans were asked, what are the top three gifts you want to receive this Christmas? And a thousand people responded to this poll. Any guesses on what was number one? Car, hey, go bold. All right. That did not make the list. Travel, okay, good guess too. But money, cash, was the number one response. 43% of respondents said they want money or cash for Christmas. Put it in my stocking, tie it with a bow, show me those Benjamins, and I'll be all aglow. That's my test of my new carol I'm writing. So, okay, it's good, it's good. Uh, number two was a close second gift cards. <laughs> oh, gotta love America. I mean, it's so great. Uh, number three, clothing or shoes. Four was cosmetics. And five was food and drink. Yay. The percentages are higher because people got to respond to their top three, of course. So that's why you see those high percentages. Um, now, evidently, there is a persistent belief that there is some kind of relationship between money and joy. What, what could that be? What could that relationship look like? In fact, if you ask most people, they'll probably draw it like this, that there is a direct relationship between money and joy. As money increases, so does joy. And actually, there's a lot of evidence that seems to suggest this is close to the truth. However, um, the, the evidence suggests the line looks more like this, that there is uh, you know, a relationship that money can contribute to human happiness or joy, but that money's utility levels off at a certain point, which makes sense. You know, once a person achieves 
a certain level of security and well-being, adding more money or stuff won't boost that anymore. It's just at its, at its peak. Okay, now, what if we change this? And we ask the question, instead of money, what if we change it to ask about economic justice? What is the relationship now between joy and economic justice? Now, it might depend on whose joy we're talking about. Because economic justice refers to a leveling. Leveling the set of factors that contribute to economic security and prosperity. In other words, wealth becomes more equally distributed than it is now at the present. So the super rich would have something to lose, but the very poor would have much to gain. Now, seeing as one person's wealth, if we look at like the billionaire class, they're on my phone uh, record. Let me call them and find out how they feel about this. Um, <clears throat> if, we, if we ask them to voluntarily donate their billions, it would dramatically, life-changing kind of response or life-changing result if they gave away their wealth to millions of people around the world. And so I might suggest that the line looks exactly like this that the more economic justice there is in the world, the more joy. And in part because the joy becomes shared joy. It multiplies. It's exponential. When a lot of people's uh, economic fortunes increase, it benefits them, and it benefits them in a multiplied kind of way. Their joy becomes shared joy as the entire community is lifted. All right, well, this brings us to uh, the Christmas story and our Advent theme this morning of joy. Because in the Bible's Christmas story, we see a very clear call for economic justice. And we see that this prophetic vision comes with a lot of joy. So we're going to look at the Bible's story from Luke chapter 1. Excuse me. At this point in the story, Mary is pregnant with Jesus, and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is also expecting. So we're going to read the story, and as we read it, pay attention to where you see joy in the story and where you see things related to money and economic justice. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For God has looked with favor on the lowly state of her servant Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is her name. 
Indeed, her mercy is for those who fear her from generation to generation. She has shown strength with her arm. She has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. She has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. She has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. She has come to the aid of her children in remembrance of her mercy. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. Well, this is the story of two women experiencing very unlikely pregnancies. Mary is a virgin and pregnant. That's unusual. <laughs> Her cousin, Elizabeth, much older, is married to Zachariah, and they had long experienced infertility. But now both women are pregnant, and they are filled with joy. At Mary's greeting, there's so much joy that the babies are leaping in the mother's wombs. The joy is not just because they are expecting, however. The joy is tied to a very certain theme in Mary's song. We also call Mary's song the Magnificat, according to church tradition. Thank you, love. So it's called the Magnificat in church tradition, and the theme is economic justice, a great leveling, a more equal, fair distribution of wealth that uplifts the lowly, that provides for the hungry. This is Mary the prophet. And just like the prophets of old, she is naming God's activity, God's concern for justice. Only this time it is connected with the coming, the arrival of her baby. Now, given how enormously popular Mary has been in the centuries of Christian tradition, I confess I find it puzzling that these particular lines about economic justice don't get more airtime in our Christmas carols. <laughs> don't get me wrong, I'm all for chestnuts roasting on an open fire. And joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. But are we aware what the king's arrival will mean in terms of economic justice and wealth redistribution? A lot of powerful regimes, it turns out, were very well aware of the implications of the Magnificat. During British rule in India, the British colonial power banned public recitations and singing of Mary's song. In the 1980s, the Magnificat was banned in Guatemala. It was banned in Argentina a decade before that. These colonial powers knew you can't have poor people singing about economic justice, especially when it's tied to their religion. They might get an imagination for actual justice, God forbid. Shut it down. They tried. 
Well, I was thinking about this the other day when I read a report of a long-term study on universal basic income. So universal basic income is a program where governments give no strings attached cash assistance to everyone. Um, the United States experimented with this briefly during COVID when we sent cash payments to everyone. Um, and overnight, the poverty rate in America collapsed. I mean, it just, it was absolutely reduced overnight. So there is, though, this long-term study, and it's happening now in rural Kenya. The United States nonprofit called Give Directly is the one responsible for this study. And Give Directly does exactly what its name sounds like. Like, you give them money, they give that money to uh, impoverished people around the world. And we're talking people experiencing extreme poverty is what they target. Uh, so here's the study. You can see the authors here. And I want to share the details because this is phenomenal. It was started in 2017. Here are the groups of people. So 5,000 people in this study receive $50 monthly payments promised for 12 years. So we're, we're not even halfway through the study, and this is like a preliminary report of what they found. 9,000 people received $50 monthly payments for just two years. So that part is complete. And then another 9,000 people received a lump sum payment of $1,200. So the same, the equivalent of that middle group the third group got lump sum payment, okay? Here are the results so far. <clears throat> Number one, cash assistance works. It's like magic. When poor people get money, they spend it on the things that matter most, their children. They spend it on education. They spend it on better nutrition and food. They spend it on long-term investments like land or building a business. It is like magic. There's stories of people building a new well in the village that provides water for tons and tons of people. They maybe sell some of the water at a nominal uh, you know, price, but they themselves have water. People don't have to walk as far to get water. They have it there so they can use their time for other things. It's transformational. Number two, the lump sum payments seem to have advantages over the monthly payments. So the group that received the lump sum payments seemed to fare a little better than the two-year group with the monthly installments. And the reason is because they could take that lump sum and do something big immediately. Uh, it's like getting a loan to start a new business. But it wasn't a loan, it was just cash. And that's exactly what they did. They did that big thing. Maybe they sent their child to a school and could spend the money on tuition, or they could do that new well, or buy land, whatever it was. This points to the third takeaway, which is that co cooperation lifted everyone. So in the study, what they would do is they would look at a whole village. Let's say there's 500 adults in the village. They, they would give money to all 500 people. So the entire village would all benefit from these grants, these, these payments. 
What people figured out then is that they could safely start a business knowing that their neighbors would have money to buy whatever they were going to sell. And they had that surety moving forward. They also watched as the people getting monthly payments formed little pods or co-ops to take advantage of greater money. So let's say six of us are getting those monthly payments. We all know we're getting those payments. We can count on it. And so we're all going to take turns about and pool our money, and one month, I'm going to get 600 bucks. The next month, Tom's going to get 600 bucks. The next month, Brian's going to get 600 bucks, right? And we're all going to take turns over the time to take advantage of those lump sums. The cooperation lifted everyone. The joy was multiplied. It was exponential in the villages. Okay, finally, for the naysayers out there, Inflation wasn't affected. <laughs> wah, wah. <clears throat> it's true. Some of the economists suggest that if you do this on a much, much bigger scale, you might see it. But it's encouraging because even in a village, let's say of 500 adults, even the microeconomy was unaffected by the flood of cash. So no one was upping their prices. Like, that just didn't happen. They did not see that kind of thing happen on the micro level within the villages. Okay, what's all this got to do with Mary's song and Christmas? Well, what got my attention in the first place was this connection of joy. I want to read to you some from the NPR report that got my attention. So here I'll be reading from NPR. NPR traveled to Kenya early into the launch at a village near Lake Victoria. <clears throat> During a community meeting that day, people's phones suddenly began to ping with a text alert, notifying them that their bank account, their mobile bank account, had just received the monthly grant. The crowd erupted in cheers. Some of the younger women broke into song. The joy was a reflection of just how much people in the community had been struggling. The year before this experiment had started, 85% of recipients reported experiencing hunger. The joy of Christmas. This is the Magnificat enacted today. Young women breaking out into song, crowds cheering, the hungry being fed, children provided for. This is the good news for the poor that Jesus preached. It's exactly what Mary envisioned as she sang about the birth of her son, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Friends, as we celebrate Christmas, I want to invite us to enter into Mary's vision, Mary's prophetic hope of global economic justice. I want to invite us to remember the poor. How can we remember the poor this Christmas? How can we remember the poor in our own local community? How can we remember the most impoverished of humankind around the world. Mary's prophetic vision tells us that when God comes, there is a leveling. 
It is an invitation for those who have enough to share what they have with those who do not. Those who have an abundance can freely give of that abundance to see a lifting of the poor. This is God's coming into our world. This is Mary's vision of Christmas. I know these are hard economic times. Uh, Many of us are acutely aware of the rising costs of food and shelter, other basic expenses. So I, I do not wish to minimize the real challenges that we face. But I also hear Mary singing. You hear her singing. She is anticipating joy. That joy comes with the invitation to give, to give generously, to see the poor uplifted. And I hope we can remember the poor locally and around the world. Here in Johnson County, 17% of the population live at or below the federal poverty line. And it's estimated that 8% of residents in this county experience hunger or food insecurity. Many of them are children. So there is a need, clearly, locally. And there is obviously a need around the world. So I want to, again, just simply hold out this vision, this invitation to us as a community, as individuals. How will we enter into Mary's song? How will we join her in singing? How will we respond to Mary's prophetic voice this Christmas? The joy will be ours, friends, as we enter into this song. May we embrace Mary's prophetic hope with courage and wisdom and joy. Amen.